just, uh, just as before I begin, I just want to highlight uh, one thing um, that I thought of as, as, we were, as we were hearing all the announcements. In the bulletin this week, you guys have a sheet that includes both uh, one side is financials, a financial update, which we used to have, our budget box that kind of fell by the wayside, but hopefully we'll continue to be, to, you'll, you'll see it uh, from month to month. And on the other side is our missionaries. Uh, I realize we don't get to see our missionaries, and sometimes it's out of sight, out of mind for many of us. And so this is a way to keep them in our mind and in our hearts and in our prayers. So I encourage you to take this home and use this in your, your prayer time as you, as you pray for uh, various things. Please be in prayer for our missionaries. Um, so that will be coming out uh, monthly, so we'll get one at the beginning of every month. Well, we are continuing our study in the Gospel of Mark Uh, We're plodding along slowly, but this week we're going to take a little bit of a bigger chunk of text. And as you'll notice, there's a there's a chunk missing. Um, This this whole section um, is really about the household or family of God from from uh, verse seven all the way to the end of the chapter in chapter three. And we're going to be looking at this over the course of two weeks. And so this week we'll kind of look at uh, what it means to be part of the household of God as his uh, people. And then next week we're going to focus in on those, the, that chunk that's missing where we will look particularly at the relationship of the family, and the, nu- the nuclear or the initial family, that is the triune uh, God, uh, Father, Son, and Spirit, and the unity and, and love and power that is there. Um, so we'll look at that uh, next week more specifically, but this week talking more broadly um, about uh, the family of God. So with that, let's turn to our text. We'll read God's Word. You can turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark chapter 3. We're going to start in verse 7, read to verse 21, um, and then we'll look at verses 31 uh, to 35. Uh, so Mark 3, 7, 21, 7 to 21, 31 to 35. Uh, you can find it in your bulletins or turn with me in your Bibles. Hear God's word. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Edomia and from beyond the Jordan and from Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him uh, to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired. And they came to him, and he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Bonerges, that is, sons of thunder, and Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus and Simon the zealot and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. And then he went home, and the crowd gathered again, so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard of it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, He's out of his mind. Verse 31. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. 
And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. The word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would uh, help us to understand your word this morning, and that we would see the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ, our brother, the co-heir. Lord, we thank you that in him we have relationship with you, our Heavenly Father. And so we ask that you would help us to see these glorious truths uh, in your word today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Family, on the one hand, is a warm and cozy topic. Hallmark has made a killing off of the idea of family. Movies and cards and TV shows and what have you. And why? Well, of course, filial connections and family love is a real thing. Uh, many of us know that. Many of you can think of affectionate thoughts when you've, that you've had when you think about your family, whether it's your spouse or your parents or your grandchildren or your great-grandchildren or your brothers or your sisters or aunts or uncles or whoever it might be. But on the other hand, family is a very complex and complicated and oftentimes painful topic. And oftentimes it's not an either or. It's not all love and and, and affection or pain and sorrow. Most of the time it's a mixed thing. We have great affection for our family members and yet... We can have deep wounds, often our deepest wounds, uh, from them. And ever since the fall, conflict and hurt within families thrives. It's no wonder then that something so foundational to our existence that has such good and beauty in it is yet uh, broken and painful. It's so painful that God should need to redeem it come and make sense of it and restore it. And this is what Christ is doing. From the moment that God created Adam and Eve in the garden, God's aim was to create a family for himself. The entire Old Testament narrative is about God making a household for himself, beginning with Abraham and Ur of the Chaldeans. But it is here with Christ That God brings to fruition what was conceived in the garden, which was broken by the fall, which was foreshadowed in the Old Testament. Christ has come to call us into his family. So this morning, I want us to meditate on that briefly. What it means to be called into the family of God by the Lord Jesus Christ. And there's a lot of text here, and so... Some of the details we will just have to rush over and come back to at a later date. But I want us to get this concept down. And we'll look at some of the details. So we'll dig at certain points and other times we'll move a little quicker. Um, But I want us to look at this in three parts. First, I want us to see Jesus. Right? I think that should be the goal of every sermon. See Jesus. Um, See Jesus particularly that he is the son of God who makes the family whole. Secondly, I want us to see that Jesus establishes, establishes 
his family through the church. Right? This is a visible, visible picture of that family of God, the church. And then finally, that the family of God is marked by trust and obedience. It's the, the sort of nature or character of the family of God. But first, Jesus. Let's see Jesus, the Son of God who makes the family whole. Uh, there's a problem in our text. There are six crowds that are uh, descending uh, into the wilderness or into the seaside uh, with Jesus. Notice here that Jesus goes to the wilderness or he goes to the seaside. We see this throughout the little section of the Gospel of Mark that we've looked at. He goes into the city, into Capernaum, and then he goes out. He goes into the city. He does some miraculous event that points to his his person and work, and then he goes out into either the desolate place or to the seaside. Um, and the question is, why does he go? Why does he go out there? You know, the very first time that he went out into the wilderness that we saw, he was, it was after his baptism. He goes out into the wilderness and he's tested by, the, by, by Satan himself. And he's being prepared and set apart for ministry. But oftentimes he goes out with his disciples to be in fellowship with them. But not just with his disciples, but he goes out there to be in fellowship with his heavenly father. We'll see throughout the Gospel of Mark that oftentimes he'll go up to the mountains or out into the desolate places to pray, to commune. One one way we can think about this is that he retreats for family time. Now, I don't know about you, but I love family time. I, I think it is a great thing. We try to carve out time in our family to not be uh, doing things with other people. Now we love to bring people into our family and we love to engage with people. That's part of our ministry and our life. We, we thrive in that, but, but we also take time out. We go away and we spend time together as a family. And this in many ways is what Jesus was, was longing to do. He goes out to the seaside and yet he's followed by this great crowd He just can't get away from the people. And people are coming from everywhere. We're told that they're coming from the north and the south and from the east and the west. All those regions that you see there are all places surrounding and in Israel and also even outside of Israel. Tyre and Sidon are Phoenician cities. People are streaming in. And why are they streaming to Jesus? Well, he's gained a reputation as a great healer. Someone who can solve the problems that they have, their physical and spiritual issues. And so they're streaming to him. And the crowd is so great that Jesus says uh, to his disciples, let's get a boat. I think that's a great solution to most things. Um, And it's a way to kind of separate himself from the crowd because he was worried that they would crush him, that the crowd was so large that they would crush him. It's interesting that people coming from all these various places have heard of Jesus. And I think there is something to this, that it's a hint at the vastness of the family of God, what it will be, right? This isn't the family of God yet necessarily. These are just people that want to be healed. But as people come to know Jesus, they are coming from all places. Not just Jerusalem, not just Judea, but from, from Gentile regions. And it's hinting at that 
glorious truth that God is knitting together a family for himself, a people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. One of the glories of the church is its vastness and its diversity. At least that's, it is that way, even if it isn't that way every Sunday in every church. What binds the family together is not language. It is not ethnicity. It is not culture. What binds us together as the family of God is the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. We are, we are united to him. And I think there is a constant battle here and challenge for us to think about how we can break down walls of hostility, racial and ethnic and cultural walls that persist. And I think in our country in particular that has been marred by various injustices regarding race and culture and ethnicity, some even perpetuated in the name of Christ, we have a particular responsibility to show that the gospel unites us as believers and brings us into a family of God. That, I think, is part of the working out of what it means to be a family under God. Christ is making his church whole. He is bringing in the nations, and there will be a day when every tribe and tongue and nation will be gathered around the throne of God, the whole family together, complete, bowing. We get visions of that in Revelation. And I think until that day, it's our call to love one another and to prepare. And so we have to, I think, in that sense, fight for wholeness in the church. Now, this is a huge topic, so I'm going to set it aside. There's much more to be said about it. It's deserving of its own study, but for the sake of time, I'll leave that challenge with you all and with myself as we think about what it means to be the family of God, reflecting uh, the, the, the breadth and diversity and vastness of the kingdom. Well, these people that came from everywhere to find Jesus were in a desperate state. They were sick and demon-possessed, and they were looking to find relief and restoration. Jesus, as I mentioned, was worried about being crushed by the crowds. Ironically, the crowds would crush him, of course. There would be a day when, when the crowds would cry out, crucify him, and he would be crushed for us. Yet, despite Jesus' own needs, his desire to have retreat and a time with his disciples and fellowship with the Father, he continues to minister and heal the people. They press in on him, and he heals them. It was a a taste, if you will, of what it means to have life in the household of God, to be relieved from suffering, to be restored and made whole, to to have the the evil spirits that were within them uh, exercised, taken out, and to be shown, oh, there is a day when I will be completely whole. What it means to be a part of the family of God. I think it's an interesting picture to think about the family as a place of healing. Um, And I, I totally understand that for some it is not 
For some, it's a place of pain. But I think in its ideal state, it's a place of healing. There's a great song by Dar Williams. Um, she's a folk singer. She's not a believer or anything. She just sings good story songs. And uh, in this song, it's named Family. That's the name of the song. And the opening line is, can you fix this? It's a broken heart. It was fine. It just fell apart. It's mine, but I bring it to you. Can you fix it? You know what to do. That's the, sort of the chorus line of the, the tune, the, the song. And I, I just think that is what the family ought to be. A place of healing and of restoration. And we get a picture, a vision of that with Jesus as the people stream to him. And he says, come, come, be a part of this family. Know what it means to be restored, to be made whole, to be healed. But the problem is that people don't see Jesus. They don't see Jesus, despite the miraculous powers and signs that he is showing, showing them. They fail to see what he is really like, what, he's being, what they're being offered. They don't see who it is that is offering. But there are those there that see Jesus. The demons. The demons see Jesus. What a strange thing, right? Um, the people come because he's a faith worker. He, 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 heals, their, he heals their brokenness and they, they want to be healed. They, 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 they find some comfort in that, but they don't recognize him for who he is. Yet the demons do. And of course, they cry out. Anytime they see him, you can almost picture it as the people who are demon-possessed come close to Jesus, that they all of a sudden fall on their knees and say, the Son of God. Now, there's been a lot of ink spilled over why they cry out, Son of God. Um, uh, one, one theologian, one commentator, exegete, points out that there is actually confrontational tone in their words. It isn't a confessional tone. It isn't, oh, the Son of God, I've come to worship, but it's a confrontational tone. Yes, inferior to, to this glorious Son of God, these demons come and say these words, but it is not out of confession. And I, I, he pointed out, he said, names are a powerful thing in uh, this world. Uh, one of the points that he made was in the intertestamental writings in the pseudepigrapha, which is not scripture, yet it helps inform us of some of the historical background. Uh, there's an example of, uh, sort of a fanciful example of uh, Solomon talking to Beelzebub, right? You can go and read this. And it's sort of a confrontational dialogue, it's this sort of fanciful confrontational dialogue. And in this fanciful confrontational dialogue, it begins with Solomon asking the question, who are you? And Beelzebub, you know, he's, he says, I know who you are. You are Beelzebub. It's this power over the demon. And the demon says, and who are you? Right? Uh, in order to sort of gain an upper hand. You see, there was power in being able to name one's adversary. Uh, I think I mentioned this in a previous sermon. And I noted that we see this in our popular fiction writing of uh, um, uh, the Harry Potter series. Um, and, you know, the one who must not be named. And, and the, the heroes of that story say, no, we need to name him. His name is Voldemort. And we're going to reduce him by giving him his name. So there's some 
power struggle that's going on. But of course, there isn't really a power struggle here. Right? The Son of God was not in the same league, not in the same category, not in the same realm, and in no way, in no way subject to the demons. Rather, what we see here is that the demons are subject to him. And maybe in part of their saying, Son of God, they were mocking him. Maybe they were saying, look, here's the Son of God in the form of a man? Really? Of course, they didn't have the full scope of what Jesus was doing. But maybe they were in some way trying to, trying to reduce him by pointing out his, the disconnect between the glorious Son of God and the frame of man. Well, no matter what the demon's aim was, Jesus clearly exerts his authority over them. These demons had no place in the house of God. No right to proclaim his glory and title. No authority to reveal his identity. So what does Jesus do? He shuts their mouths. You are not allowed to tell anybody about this. But here's the thing. The demons were right. He was the Son of God. It was maybe lost on the crowd who viewed him as a means to end their suffering, but had little thought of him as the divine Son. But I just want us to reflect on this reality for just a moment. Jesus is the Son of God. He is not, we're not simply, when we talk about becoming members of the household of God or becoming family, about us joining with just one another. Though that is a big piece of it. It's not just this. The real issue, the amazing reality, is that we're talking about being joined together and united through Christ to the Father by the power of the the Holy Spirit. There is an amazing reality that we are uniting ourselves to the divine. And we're going to look at the divine family next week as we look at a little bit at the Trinity. But as partakers in Christ, we are partakers of God himself. And we are members of his house. So what does this mean? What does it mean for us that that we call Christ our brother? Well, it means that we are co-heirs, co-heirs of all the blessings of heaven. What does that mean? It means... It includes access to our Heavenly Father, the one who made us, who rules over us, who upholds heaven and earth itself. We have access to that throne, and not only access, but we are welcomed into his presence. And when we are welcomed into his presence, we are allowed to call him Abba. Okay, what is Abba? It's the most intimate name, family relationship. But I wonder, for you and I, do you see Jesus? Do you see him as the divine son and the one who calls you into his family and who makes you whole? Do you see him? Friends, the truth is that the Son of God came to reconcile us to the Father because the problem was not just that we had broken bodies, with various ailments, or even that we had all sorts of spiritual and psychological problems. But our spiritual issue, the root of the issue, is that we have rebelled 
against our Heavenly Father. We rebelled against Him. And in our sin, we abandoned the one who made us. And yet here, the Son comes and He calls us to Himself and He restores us and He reconciles us to the Father and He makes us whole again. Believer, I think it's easy for us to forget who we are as members of the household of God, that we are God's children. As Galatians tells us, you are sons. You are the firstborn inheritors of all the blessings of heaven, co-heirs with Christ. You are his. He is yours. He has made you. You can see Jesus, the Son of God, who makes, our, makes the family whole. And secondly, I want us to see that Jesus establishes his family through the church. So they tried to get away in a boat, and they didn't. But we're told afterward that they went um, up uh, onto the mountain, and they, uh, Jesus went up onto the mountain, and he called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. We see here uh, that Jesus was going up to the mountain. And whenever we see that, I think we should take note. Throughout the book of Mark, really throughout the whole of Scripture, going up to the mountain is a significant thing. You can just think back into the Old Testament of Moses on the mountain with God, fellowshipping with him, receiving the law. Um, But here in the Gospel of Mark, we'll see it a few times. In chapter 6, Jesus will go up and he will pray with his father uh, on the mountain. It's a place where he meets with his heavenly father, that, that triune communion and union that the Father and the Son and the Spirit have uh, happens in in some explicit way in chapter 6. And in chapter 9, he'll go up with his few of his closest disciples and he'll be transfigured. That great glorious moment when he reveals uh, his glorious power and might. He'll be transfigured. Remember, Peter will want to build little tabernacles, little tents up there on the mountain so that he can dwell up there forever with God. That's the idea of being with God on the mountain. And then in chapter 13 is also a place of revelation. It's the place where the word is revealed. Jesus talks about and prophesies concerning the destruction of the temple from the Mount of Olives. We also have that that whole discourse on the Mount of Olives to his disciples where he teaches them just before he goes to his crucifixion. So what we see here should be recognized as a significant thing, you know. The calling of the twelve, in some ways, is kind of uh, straightforward. We just get a bunch of names and their, you know, who they are. But, um, but really, this is a significant and weighty happening. It's a big thing because these are the men who will be called to go out and to make disciples of all the nations. They are the ones who are going to establish the church. On the the proclamation of the apostles as they go out into all the world making disciples. Of course, Jesus being the chief cornerstone as we read earlier. And there's just a few things that I want to say to regard to the specifics of the people. I think we're going to let most of it pass by. In some ways, some of the people we don't have very much information on. Um, and others take a very prominent place. Right? So Peter is obviously very prominent. James and John have a more prominent place. 
Um, and uh, we saw Matthew earlier, and we see uh, Judas, of course, has a role. Um, but for some of these, we, we know little about. We know Thomas was a doubter. Um, but anyway, I, w- I want to just highlight a few things about these, these men. The first thing that I want to note is that they are called. They're called. Um, that is, Jesus chose them. He chose them to follow him. And that actually includes Judas. He chose them to be that 12 disciples whom he was going to use uh, in ministry. And he sends them, he commissions them, he sends them out. Uh, he, they're going to, at this moment even, they're going to go and proclaim the good news. They're going to heal and they're going to cast out demons. Um, they're going to exercise the will of Christ uh, in, in that role. But they're called. And this is the pattern of Christ's work to establish his family. Just as Abraham was called. He was called out of Ur of the Chaldeans. He, he is called from his home to follow Christ. And so each and every one of us is called. We're called. And we're exhorted to to heed the call, the external call of the gospel, even as God calls effectually by his Holy Spirit. He calls us to respond with faith. And there's a warning here with that. Judas, who was called... uh, didn't necessarily respond in the same way as the other disciples. Following Jesus doesn't mean just being with Jesus. What do I mean by that? Uh, Well, look at this more in our final point. But um, following Jesus means trusting and obeying. It means putting your faith and hope in Christ. It means following his commands. Him as Lord over you. You see, Judas followed Jesus up the mountain. He even followed him all the way to the upper room. But he did not trust Jesus. And I think there's a warning there for all of us who would claim to know Christ, who would identify ourselves with Christians, who would say, I come to church on Sundays, and yet I'd fail to trust the Lord Jesus. We're called to trust Jesus. So they are called. The second thing that we note about these disciples is that they're all sinners. They're all sinners. We don't know much about some of them, but we do know about many of them, or about some of them a lot, and about their sins and foibles. And Simon Peter is the easy one, right? He's the easy one to pick on. He's at the head of the list. And I think here he's at the head of the list of sinners, too, in many ways for the this gospel. Remember, Mark's gospel is really Peter's gospel in many ways. Mark was uh, a companion of Peter as well and knew Peter. And many of the things that come out of the text seem to come from Peter's own experience. And so Peter understood his own sin. And I want us to think about this in terms of being the church, what it means to be part of God's family. It doesn't mean that we earn our spot on the list. It doesn't mean as disciples uh, uh, we ought to bicker about our place either, right? Remember the disciples? Who is going to sit at the right and left hand of Jesus? Who is going to get the prominent positions? In fact, being in the household of God means knowing that we are undeserving. It means casting ourselves on his mercy and grace. 
It means recognizing that he bled and died to make a family out of idolaters, blasphemers, liars, murderers, coveters, adulterers, and thieves. In other words, he came to make a family out of sinners like you and me. He did it by his power and his grace. The third thing that we see, they're called, that they're all sinners, but they were called to build the church. They were called to bear witness to Christ and to bring together those who would be in the family of God. Uh, The church is described in Scripture in a variety of ways. It's called the people of God. It's called uh, the uh, uh, dwelling of God or the temple of God. And here it's called the household. What does, that, what does that mean for us as we think about our mission as we go out? It means that we are also called as the family of God to go out and to gather in the lost, to, to offer wholeness and restoration, to proclaim the good news and to offer healing and forgiveness. It means we ought to be going to the ends of the earth. Proclaiming that there is grace for sinners like you and me. But this brings me to my final point in conclusion. I need to end early a little bit because of our congregational meeting. Um, the family of God is marked by those who trust and obey. At the end of this section, at the very section that we just were looking at with the disciples, uh, it says that they went home and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. If I ever thought that there was a family thing to do, it's eat. Eat is sort of the, the most common family activity, to come together and eat. And they couldn't even do that. But then Jesus' family, his physical family, came and they wanted to seize Jesus. And they said that he was out of his mind. And later on, at the end of the text... It seems that they also went out and they got uh, his mother as well to come. So they came and standing outside, they, they sent him and called for him. And a crowd was sitting around him and they said to him, your mother and brothers are outside. Presumably they wanted to drag him away back to Nazareth. Things had gotten out of hand. He needed to return home. Now, I know for some of you. That when you decided to follow Jesus, your families, your friends, maybe tried to intervene. Maybe they didn't say you were out of your mind, but they came pretty close. They felt as though you had gone crazy. Maybe they still feel that way. And I would argue that maybe following Jesus... According to the world, anyway, following Jesus is a bit crazy. It means losing your life. It means making God not your, making God, that is, not yourself, the very center of all things. It means prioritizing the things of God even over family matters. But a family a couple that I did pre-marriage counseling for, and, and actually before that I baptized uh, at the previous church, uh, the one, the, hus- the groom, um, before they were married, he, he came to faith, and I had the opportunity to baptize him. 
And his, his parents were fine. He was from an a, a Indian um, background, and uh, his family was nominally Hindu. Um, and they were fine with him being a Christian and going to church. But when he decided to get baptized, it was a bridge too far. It was too much. It was too crazy. It was out of their mind. But in reality, it was the only way to be brought into the family of God and to know what it means to be restored and made whole. I know that some of you struggle with this. Your earthly families put many demands. But here's the glorious thing. Well, one is we can pray for those earthly families that they would be brought into the household of God. But here's the other glorious thing. That even in the hurt of those family situations, we come into this, a place where we can begin to restore and to heal and to know the love of Christ together as the family of God. The glorious thing. Jesus says, if you want to know what it means to be a part of this family, it means putting your trust in me, following me in obedience and faith. Come, follow Jesus, the one who was willing to go to the cross to be forsaken by his Father, that you might be brought into relationship with him, his Father, through the Holy Spirit. Come, follow Jesus. He calls you. Heed the call. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for...